we begin with breaking news from Charlottesville, Virginia, where two people have been injured in an altercation with protesters who are out in force over the planned removal of a Confederate statue. Watch this. Hi, and welcome to Take a Walk on the Right Side, a podcast dedicated to understanding the key ideas, books, organizations, and individuals that comprise an increasingly transnational far-right-wing movement. Take a Walk on the Right Side hosts open and nuanced discussion between myself, Jesse Morton, once a jihadist propagandist, and Matt Heimbach, himself once a white nationalist and far-right-wing ideologue. Matt was considered by many to be the future face of white supremacy in the United States, particularly after the disastrous 2017 Unite the Right rally he co-organized in Charlottesville. Since then, however, Matt has departed the movement and has transitioned toward new understandings and beginnings. We seek to assist by providing a deeper, first-hand look at the threat the extreme right poses. We do so each week by analyzing the impact of key propaganda pieces, the impact they've had on creating a constantly mutating ideology and worldview that drives far right-wing movements currently. By including our personal experiences in between, we aim to document similarities across the myriad ideological strands of extremism. At the same time, we hope to encourage others not to be deluded by the extremist mindset or recruiters and to leave if they are actively involved. Without further ado. So welcome back to another edition of Take a Walk on the Right Side. Last week, we started our series discussing the key books and ideologues that have driven far-right ideologies and their metastasizations onto the current era. We discussed The Turner Diaries, a 1978 novel uh, published uh, under the pseudonym uh, Andrew MacDonald by William Luther Pierce, a founder of the neo-Nazi National, uh, National Alliance, uh, someone who was directly affiliated with George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of Nazism in the United States, we might say. And we talked about the impact of The Turner Diaries on the current strand of far right wing extremism and terrorism in particular. It happened to occur that we recorded that episode on the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombings, the bombings that were carried out by Timothy McVeigh in which he carried pages of the Turner Diaries in order to make an exclamation point on the fact that he was doing so in the name of a cause. Matt took us last week on a journey that covered the strand of far-right-wing thinking that he called the Patriot or Militia Movement component. And in order to get to an important realization that it wasn't just the ideology that drove Timothy McVeigh, but also events that were occurring between the period of 1978 and 1985, particularly those that occurred in Waco. And also with regard to Ruby Ridge, we talked about the National Alliance and we talked about a number of individuals and organizations that were offshoots of that patriot and militia sort of support for the type of narrative and grievance that the Turner Diaries was espousing. This week, having listened to Matt describe it as absolutely necessary that we distinguish between two strands of far right wing extremist interpretation, that being apart from the militia and patriot movement, one that he categorized at the end of last week's discourse as Mansonite, meaning Charles Manson, Masonite, meaning James Mason, who knew William Luther Pierce, was influenced by him and who went on to promote the book Siege, and even what Matt referred to as jihadi neo-Nazism, what is now being referred to somewhat haphazardly and almost in a blanketed way as accelerationism. And so today, Matt's going to take us off on a different trajectory and talk about the more extreme far-right's interpretations of the Turner Diaries or the principles espoused in the Turner Diaries, how they evolved into what we see currently, and some of the connections between the most current interpretations of the extreme far right and their calls to leaderless resistance or lone wolf terrorism, and how in some ways they are attached from the ideas that are promoted in the Turner Diaries. Matt, I hope that that summary and recap did us justice to get started for this week. Uh, I'm hoping, do you think that we can continue from there, uh, revisiting where we left off? Yeah, so we're, we're going to uh, go into uh, basically kind of the, the three stools of, um, or the three legs of the stool of, uh, of accelerationism and, and kind of how those intersects, right? On, on one of them, I, I would say that that was, was William Pierce, um, of course, 
with the National Alliance being a political organization, but through his books pushing a slightly different agenda. Then we've got the James Mason, but also uh, a figure that I feel is is really not discussed enough in the understanding of uh, of post-war uh, fascist movements, especially um, this accelerationist brand is uh, Joseph Tomasi, who really can be seen, I think, as the inspiration for James Mason. Uh, so that's really the foundation. And then, of course, we've got Charles Manson, right? So we, 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 we've got these three legs of the stool, um, which on the top is, uh, is political terror. Uh, the only thing they understand, which is, uh, was one of the mottos of the National Socialist uh, Liberation Front, uh, which was Joseph Tomasi's organization. And um, yeah, so, so going back to the Turner Diaries, right, we, we discussed rather, rather in depth um, especially how the militia movement, how organizations like the Order came out of the militia movement, and then we've we've got this idea of how are how are the individuals involved going to accomplish their goals, right? Because the Turner Diaries is fundamentally based on there being a hierarchical organization, a traditional sort of political party to to a certain extent, um, and, and an underground that has, uh, you know, is working in many ways, kind of an example of uh, the Bolsheviks um, during the Tsarist times where the, uh, the the organization has members that are working within the within the government to help undermine it. Uh, you've got political activists, and then of course, you've got the those that are engaged in guerrilla warfare, essentially. Um, that That really reflects a lot of kind of anti-imperialist movements, but but with like a huge slant, say like the IRA, uh, the Irish Republican Army, uh, and its political wing Sinn, Sinn Féin. But um, we, we see this shift happen, uh, both in, in the movement, and, and Pierce encapsulates uh, kind of all of this in his 1989 book, Hunter, right? So, so Hunter is technically sort of a prequel to the Turner Diaries, but I really think it sums up, um, in a way, the ideological shift that happens between the publishing of the Turner Diaries and then going forward to um, 1989, we're looking at the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the shifts that we're seeing in the American economy um, with the beginning of free trade agreements, outsourcing, uh, the decaying middle class, of course, the, uh, the really the psychological impact of the, the loss of the war in Vietnam on uh, on Middle America, things like that, really encapsulate into the, this concept of uh, of leaderless resistance and of direct action, right? So just to um, I always like to start with a little little bit of a quote, right? Um, so coming from the the third page of of Hunter, it laying out the the character in Hunter is Oscar Jaeger. Um, Jaeger, of course, is, uh, is German for, um, uh, for Hunter, and which is the name of the book, obviously. And uh, it's discussing how he's gone out and done uh, a bunch of shootings of interracial couples, um, targeting people that, that he viewed as an enemy. Uh, Oscar Jaeger is portrayed, he's a, a veteran, um, which I think is important. That kind of ties back into the militia thing that we talked about before, where you know an increasing amount of people like Timothy McVeigh didn't view themselves like that they had served the country, that the country didn't represent them anymore, uh, and they had to strike back. And I think this is interesting because it gets in the psychology of, of all the things we're talking about. So after he's done some, some of these killings, he's, uh, the book reads, when the second double killing came four days later, it had been mentioned briefly in the inside pages of the post and then quietly dropped. The third, fourth, and fifth pairs of shootings had been greeted with total media silence. The reason was clear. At some time between the second and third shootings, it had dawned on the media that the killings were racially motivated, and the realization frightened them. They didn't want to encourage any would-be imitators, or even give hope to a great many Americans who would cheer anyone who might be going around picking off racially mixed couples. Um, and then it goes on from there. But um, yeah, so, so I, I really think going back into um, you know a, a discussion we had really in, in the earlier episodes as well, between the political and the accelerationist wings of um, uh, white nationalism in general. And, and the accelerationists ha have really kind of come to a point, even in the, the 1970s and the 1980s, of there being those that want to engage the system politically and legally, uh, and those that want to just totally, totally throw it out, right? And this falls back to Charles Manson uh, with, with, of course, the concept of helter-skelter. For those who are unaware of what Charles Manson wanted, his vision really was that um, they were going to provoke a racial conflict. Uh, he actually was saying things such as that uh, as there was kind of a, a whiplash to civil rights, 
that uh, there, there would be a conflict between whites who were liberal, uh, whites who were you know, old school segregationists and things like that, and then the black population, where his vision was to hide essentially with his, his harem and uh, watch the whites kill the whites, and then the blacks would come and kill uh, essentially all the whites. And then his idea was that blacks fundamentally could not run a society. They couldn't feed themselves. It would it would fall into anarchy. This you know helter skelter, the concept of like confusion and anarchy. And uh, that is when he, as some sort of like modern day Jesus character to a certain extent, I mean he you know he's quoted as saying that he's like ten times the Pope, uh, would come forth from the desert from this underground lair, and uh, and then he would tell the blacks that um, he was going to. You know, he was going to, to lead them. And essentially you would have this world of Charles Manson and his, his followers ruling over an entirely um, non-white America, essentially. Which is interesting comparing the Turner Diaries, where of course the Turner Diaries ends with killing all non-whites on the planet. Charles Manson is talking about in the 1960s uh, about all whites being killed, actually. It's, it's not some sort of like heroic narrative, which I do think is interesting and to, to really dissect as an ideology, that it wasn't some you know total Aryan victory, uh, which of course was a phrase often used by members of the order uh, of you know whites not only taking over the country but taking over the world. Uh, Manson really believed in kind of tearing everything down into like Mad Max tier, and he didn't want there to be some like flourishing white ethno state. He wasn't advocating for national socialist economic trade policy. Uh, he was actually willing to sacrifice like 99 point some odd percent of, uh, of white Americans, whites in the world perhaps. Um, so then he could, he could roll over in a, a really virulent form of like white supremacy, but also the classic white man's burden. Like, ah, these people of color can't manage their own affairs. So, um, I'm going to, to roll over them and that's going to solve the, um, you know, solve all the problems of society essentially and uh wow man that's <laughs> that's some pre pretty interesting uh kind of crazy stuff when you think about it but manson of course uh put forward these ideas he ends up getting arrested uh along with a bunch of members of his you know quote-unquote family um but then we see the concept of uh really just taking the fight to the system of, of this anarchy and lawlessness and that's what Joseph Tomasi really brought to the table. I mean, he ended up being killed. He was like 25 or something like that. He made a huge impact for, for a really young man, but he'd been involved in, uh, in far-right politics for a long time. And how this intersects with the Turner Diaries, before I, I turn it back over to you, um, and I take another sip of my coffee, <laughs> is um, <laughs> that, uh, of course, uh, Commander George Lincoln Rockwell, um, who, for those who, who are unaware, uh, the term commander, he actually was a commander in the Navy. Uh, he was decorated uh, as a World War II uh, soldier. So uh, that, that's not some made-up title. That actually was his military rank. Uh, commander George Lincoln Rockwell, who founded the American Nazi Party, uh, really was steadfast in being legal. He actually would go ahead and meet with members of the FBI, not to rat on people in his organization, but he believed in total transparency. He believed that the system and J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uh, was pro-American. It was fighting communism. It, it was on, on their side. So he believed in total transparency, believed in America. He ran for governor of, uh, of Virginia at one time. And um, you know, that, that's a totally legal political front, right? Um, after Commander Rockwell is assassinated, what ends up happening is um, the American Nazi Party shifts, and then we see, again, this, this branch between accelerationism and politics happen. And Joseph Tomasi is one of the big characters that creates that. You know, he's a young man, he's very passionate, and he doesn't think that doing protests or running people for elected office is the way to go, that he, he wants this helter-skelter. His ideology is influenced by Charles Manson, and he wants to fight the, the system directly with guns, bombs, and, and in his phrase, political terror. So he breaks off uh, from the successor organization of the American Nazi Party to create the National Socialist Liberation Front. Now, uh, the National Socialist Liberation Front um, is an organization that is totally dedicated to not not doing things legally, essentially. But William Luther Pierce had been involved in the original American Nazi Party. So we see some of perhaps the ideology of Pierce and, and more of his uh, 
you know, kind of mindset that then we see in the Turner Diaries and Hunter influence guys like Joseph Tomasi, who then Tomasi, after he's killed, um, he, he's shot in the head in front of his party headquarters, uh, dies as a very young man. But the, the members of the National Socialist Liberation Front who have accepted and understood and want to bring about this political terror, anarchy, um, helter-skelter sort of, sort of mindset, one of the characters involved in that is, of course, James Mason, who goes on to write um, the, the uh, leaflets and the magazine articles that are combined into then what we know as Siege that influences groups today like the base and Adamwaffen division. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place, Jesse, and I apologize. But, but I think it's really like important to like go back into the history to understand these these three um, three legs of of the stool, really, that that bring us to the ideology that political terror is is the way to go, and it's it's often not talked about. Like it, people would say, oh, a branch off a branch off of Commander George Lincoln Rockwell's American Nazi Party believes this, and, and if you really look ideologically they're 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 really 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 distinct from each other, but we see this vein of Will, Dr. William Luther Pierce that goes through to inspire um, Timothy McVeigh and, and others really begins back in the 1960s. And, and these these fragments bring in the characters, essentially, that play a role to develop this ideology further, even if, if it's in stops and starts when people die, people leave, uh, organizations fall apart. Uh, there's really an unbroken line. Um, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, you've got, um, you know, the, the, the succession, right? from uh, the, the first pope on down. And, uh, and and in lots of ways, like when it comes to the far right, not that I'm comparing the two as uh, <laughs> anywhere, um, but, but there is like a line of succession from William Luther Pierce inspiring in a lot of ways, breaking from Commander Rockwell. He didn't like Rockwell's style or, or a lot of his politics into the National Socialist Liberation Front, then into these these further organizations that uh, leads us to today. So I'll uh, I'm, I'm sure you've got, plenty of questions there's plenty to go on but uh i'll turn it back over to you okay well thank you that was a that was a good and complex overlap let me just uh i'm glad you painted in the fact toward the end of your analysis there that you returned us to the fact that you are discussing events that occurred not coinciding to the launch of the turner diaries in the late 70s or when it was serialized in the mid 70s but what preceded that in the movement of neo-Nazism itself in particular. The Manson killings were, of course, in the late 60s. They caused massive uh, sort of shock and awe. I don't think that people are as familiar with the white supremacist sort of values and the vision that drove Mansonism, uh, if you will. But yes, definitely, I think it's important that you mentioned all of the right figureheads because you have William Luther Pierce, who is involved before publishing the Turner Diaries as one of the leading thinkers and is affiliated with the, with the side of neo-Nazism that we're discussing that wants to abide for the most part by legal uh, mechanisms of social change. And one thing that is interesting is when you think about the splintering or the fragmentation of extremist groups, we see this often, no matter whether it's the far right or jihadism, what we're talking about with this Manson or Masonite strand of accelerationist thinking is much in tune with the same splinter and fracture that occurred a few years back between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, where ISIS adopted this platform of the management of savagery, tear it down, show that it can't be uh, functionable, show that the system itself cannot sustain unless the people turn towards the jihadists for help. It's very much a similar strand that results from similar phenomenon. When you talk about Joseph Tomasi being young, right, and you talk about the influences that were going on inside of the American Nazi party, and then what led up to his splintering, his contact with and his influence of William Luther Pierce, even in the era that preceded the Turner Diaries. When you talk about sort of, you know, with regard to the personality of Joseph Tomasi, he was young, as you said, but he was also someone who was, you know, growing his hair long, smoking marijuana, arguing with the leadership or the elderly class, Matthias Cole in particular, um, and really starting to push back against this notion that the system can be changed from within. And I think that is the onset of a splinter um, between the two strands of interpretation that we're thinking about that takes us up very well to the late 70s. So let's jump up in that direction and let's revisit not Tomasi so much as we get into Mason and how that 
he, unto this day, recently even, you know, he kind of disbanded Adam Waffen. But we saw similar phenomenon happen into the future, where when we had post-Charlottesville, that accelerationist domination and the fragmentation coming from Iron March, the formulation of Adam Waffen, the formulation of what we just got done identifying as a 13-year-old kid-run operation, Fuhrkrieg division, and all of these more accelerationist strands were basically an assault on the traditional leadership as well, meaning that their memes assaulting the boomers are very akin to the way that Joseph Tomasi and then Mason in turn uh, would go on to assault the leadership that still believed in participation with the political process in order to enforce social change. And what you have in the bridge between what you might say is in the Turner Diaries, an adoption of one particular mechanism for bringing about societal change through the use of force. But with Hunter, you really get the serial killer strand embodied uh, in William Luther Pierce's uh, continued and sustained thinking coming out of the Turner Diaries. So take us on a trajectory that involves Mason and that takes us away from that strand and the impact of the more sort of serial killer strand of thinking that is uh, associated with Manson. How did that creep into affect people like Mason? And what was going on in the context of that area and that, and, and that time frame between 1978, the publishing of the Turner Diaries, the shift into Waco and Ruby Ridge, then the carrying out of the Oklahoma City bombings, um, and in between then, you have the publishing of Hunter. Tell us about the influence of these ideas and how they were resonating with this more uh, far, the more extremist far right, terroristic strand, if you will. Sure. sure. Well, I, you know, and one thing I, I think that's important um, to understand is a lot of these guys, I mean, again, we're, we're looking in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s as what, what, you know, they're, they're much older now, but, but as you, you pointed out that Mason at the time, Tomasi at, at the time and stuff like that, they're, they're, these are really young guys, right? So uh, when, when Joseph leaves um, the, the National Socialist uh, White Workers Party, the successor to the American Nazi Party, um, he ends up going ahead and promoting again this this sort of ideology which, which in in retrospect mason uh, talking back about him says that uh his his 1974 leaflet called political terror was a work of the most incredible genius uh and he went on to, to talk then a couple of years later and he said in the manner described by Tomasi, one of our most eloquent statements will not be made in courtrooms but in the streets of jew capitalist america the secret was he essentially stopped talking and started doing. He said that all that talk, all discussion was counter-revolutionary. The situation has been talked to death and they're still going on talking. Tomasi knew the real difference between useless effort and effective action practically applied. So in this environment, let's remember on the left, we have organizations like the Weather Underground. Um, you know, there, there are organizers, um, which I think get, get a really unfair rap and say like, the Black Panther Party, right? Just because they had guns, the Black Panther Party was incredibly invested in doing things like feeding kids, right? Their, their number one thing they did was feed kids and be community organizers. Just because you have guns doesn't mean you are violent terrorists, doesn't mean that you want to be engaged in, um, you know, in overthrowing, like, you know, going to your local courthouse and like dragging people out and shooting them in the street, right? As we see in, uh, in the Turner Diaries. But you do have far left terrorists, for lack of a better term, um, in groups like the Weather Underground that are bombing things, that, that are on the run, that are involved in counterfeiting, and are doing a lot of um, undermining the system. And of course, that's weird now, in retrospect, to look back, that some of the members of the Weather Underground are like tenured professors, right, and, and are actually kind of part of the neoliberal establishment of um of modern america i mean the uh, the republicans made uh, a huge amount of political hay over connections that uh former president barack obama had in chicago with former members of the weather underground um but le let's remember that the these ideologies are, are happening in the pressure cooker of the race riots after the assassination of uh, dr martin luther king they're happening as left-wing cells are you know going going around and, and blowing things up i mean you've got organizations um, like the ones that uh, kidnapped Patty Hearst and uh, and brainwashed her, uh, doing bank robberies and, and things like that. So it's a it's a really politically ch really charged environment um, that involves everyone. 
Okay, so this this is the way that that I think the the perception of guys like say Manson and then going forward is to develop an ideology based upon how they see the the trajectory of American politics continuing. That we we are here in uh, you know in, in a violent era and and we're going to to respond with violence. So um, going going forward in terms of all this, James Mason had been involved incredibly early um in in far-right politics and yeah he he was not interested in negotiation he did not want to you know, dress up in uniform and and march and things like that he he was inspired uh and that's what what siege is uh, and we're going to do like a whole thing on siege uh but but siege is a collection of newsletters that he's writing in these um you know early 70s to to the 80s of his of his thoughts and, and it, it gets in, increasingly radical as as time goes on but I, I think where we see with the publishing of the turner diaries and then hunter a fundamental breakdown and we talked about post charlottesville the the argument between the political wing and the accelerationists that sort of happens i, I think in a pretty good extent starting in the 1980s uh, where we see the arrest of of the order where everyone basically gets gets swept up and and we see the disintegration of the um, uh, the the white patriot party in North Carolina under Glenn Miller and others. A lot of the political organizations are either people are arrested um, or people are are sued and things like that. And again, we we've got this vacuum where there's people that are are pissed off <laughs> and and have uh, a whole lot of things that that they're upset about. But the political wing doesn't seem to be willing to do it. So so Mason as a young man really gets into this and what i think is interesting too is that how hunter is essentially based at least in like the first couple chapters off the um the the mass murder spree of joseph paul franklin um which for those of you who, who aren't aware uh, joseph paul franklin essentially went on a on a nationwide shooting spree um you know he's uh, claimed by by experts um at several of his trials claimed that he he was a paranoid schizophrenic had other had other mental health issues but he just like went around the country uh shooting interracial couples people that were involved um in the pornography industry uh he targeted uh, larry flint of course uh, because the um you know going going after jews involved in the pornography industry so so he shot him and didn't kill him uh, but crippled him for the rest of his life, and uh, other uh, civil rights organizers like Vernon Jordan and um, and just random people on the street really becomes kind of the backbone for um, the 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 plot of Hunter, right? So you've got Dr. Pierce again, like a PhD, whether you hate him or love him or have him make, whatever, like a, an incredibly smart man uh, turns to the political strategy of really creating an entire book around like a possible paranoid schizophrenic like shooting people in parking lots as the way to advance the ideology it's a breakdown from in the turner diaries the organized structure of um what what he sees and, and devolves essentially into to lone wolf terrorism using the example of jo joseph paul franklin as an example and, and then tapping into uh you know, he, he knew Mason, right? They, they, they'd been in the same organization. There, there was a, a lot of overlap in communication throughout, especially like in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, that sets up this framework for the, the lone wolf violence that continues up, up until this day. Because it, once you realize you can't organize a political organization, once you realize you can't have a hierarchical organization like the order, the order was incredibly secretive. Uh, as they were pulling off uh, not only uh, robberies, but they were going after armored cars and getting huge sums of money. And the cops really didn't know that this was like an organized organization going throughout the Pacific Northwest and, and elsewhere doing this counterfeiting and, um, and and whatnot. And as secretive as it is, as with the, the oaths and all the things we see in the Turner Diaries, right, because that's what the order was based on, still everyone gets arrested. Uh, nothing is fundamentally achieved. The ball is not moved forward. So Hunter being published later really taps into, well, you're not going to have a, uh, a huge group right? You're not going to have the, the, the same sort of hierarchy. It's going to come down to um, shooting people in parking lots and inspiring terror. And, and that's the political terror message um, of uh, Joseph Tomasi and the National Socialist Liberation Front that inspired Mason. 
that then inspired Pierce, even though Pierce w w was incredibly classist, right? Like, even though the National Alliance uh, bought skinhead music uh, record labels and things like that and made millions of dollars before the internet uh, fundamentally changed uh, the music industry for everyone, uh, but especially like white nationalism, it just gutted it. Um, because, you know, b before you would have to order from a catalog or go to a show, uh, then you can stream on YouTube before YouTube, you know, gutted everything and, and the internet changed how, how music was produced or released and, and funds. Uh, Pierce was always incredibly classist, that he didn't like skinheads, he spoke out against them, he didn't like working class people, um, he didn't like Christians, uh, Christians were actually banned from joining the National Alliance in its earliest days. Uh, he didn't like salt of the earth, like normal white people right he was very elitist but he's still putting out this propaganda especially then in hunter um of saying like oh you're a former military man oh you're you're mad at the country well he's not suggesting you go join the national alliance he's not trying to recruit you into the national alliance he is trying to recruit you into going and doing mass shootings however and uh, and that's a big ideological shift from everything we've seen previously in american white nationalism very good, very good. And so just to uh, keep in the vein of Hunter and then to continue our discourse and push it up, moving toward the current uh, arena and era. Um, so Hunter is published, and as you suggested, it's actually a prequel to the Turner Diaries. And it's an endorsement, almost implicit and explicit, if you will, of the fact that what occurs in the Turner Diaries from the organization or the order um, is sort of a much more organized outfit. But what might need to precede that period, almost, uh, it's as if uh, William Luther Pierce is saying, is not going to come from an organization, but from the wanton violence of what we might refer to as essentially useful idiots. Um, these are individuals motivated to kill by an ideology that attacks, you know, he's killing, assassinating interracial couples um, and civil rights advocates. Um, and it's really, he explores in depth and in detail in some of the work uh, in Hunter, uh, the Jewish question and its sort of nefarious role, teasing that out a bit more um, and talking about uh, essentially endorsing this strategy, which is to endorse the serial killer strand. So I do think that in a sense, uh, you're right. This continuation is also representative of that broader discourse that is going on in between 1978 and 1989 when Hunter is published. And basically this is William Luther Pierce coming out and telling us where he falls along that line and making a, a certain endorsement uh, of, uh, of the more accelerationist strand, at least for the time being. But letting his audience know that it could lead toward something more formal. I mean, he literally um, drops the term the organization uh, altogether in Hunter and only talks about the individual. Um, and uh, it seems to me like this is an endorsement of that sort of strand of thinking. But this is 1989. How influential is it? I mean, uh, you don't see academics, you don't see uh, experts referring to Hunter. Do we see uh, far right wing extremist ideologues, particularly those that drive the narrative, picking up Hunter in 1989 and, and then throughout the 90s, do we see it bearing any impact or is it just representative of the broader uh, conversation that was occurring inside of the movement between the militia, the Patriot strand and the more sort of leaderless, re uh, leaderless resistance, anti-government, tear it all down uh, form of strategy? Sure. Well, <laughs> You know, one of the big things that, that I think is interesting is, you know, it's uh, Lenin said, right, that uh, decades, um, there are decades where sometimes nothing happens and weeks where decades happen, right? So when it comes to like the ideology of the movement, things actually remain, I mean, in my opinion, we after Oklahoma City, right, there's the crackdown on the militia movements and, and things like that. There's, there, there's kind of a... Um, kind of a break right Th things really go into the doldrums until i would say like not not that i got in the movement right and i changed everything but but around the time that i started getting involved um you know around you know late 2010s and things like that uh or the early 2010s pardon me um be, be because there are strong legal political organizations that that kind of exist including william luther pierce's own national alliance uh, i mean once the militia movement is really cracked down on and a lot, the federal government turns its eye towards uh, even Klansmen that had been involved in, in violent actions in the 1960s. 
uh, there, there's really a, a pushback, uh, I would say, kind of movement wide, and you see a, a resurgence of organizations like the um, uh, Council of Conservative Citizens, that of course used to be the White Citizens Council, pardon me, um, and it, 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 there, there's really kind of a shift. So yeah, Hunter is published in 1989 as there, there's really kind of a, a, a shift going on back towards politics, but you know, we, we wouldn't really be having this conversation unless something changed, right? And something I, I'd forgotten to uh, to point out about Hunter, how it intersects with, with Manson and things like that. So the very end of the book, uh, going back, uh, I just wanted to get a little passage from uh, page 252, where all of these, these actions that individuals have been taking around the country spark uh, essentially a, a racial uprising right against the whites. And, and here's how Pierce describes it. The majority of the black militants for young males though a surprisingly large number of females also were involved. Many were college educated and, the, and these resentments had reached its greatest pressure. Given endless assurances of their equality by the media, by college recruiters and their guilt-ridden white classmates and coworkers, they had more than their humbler brethren come up with a jolting and humiliating uh, jolt against their inherent limitations. After the first day, however, many other blacks had in effect joined the rebellion, the entire black underclass, the street gangs, the chronically unemployed, and and so on and so forth and and so actually like I, I wanted to point that out that it's it's interesting the conclusion of hunter is essentially what manson predicted of what was going to happen right like these the, these violent actions would lead to a black uprising pierce thought it would come from the top down within the black community uh but then spread and then there would be this 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 widespread helter skelter right so so i do think that's interesting 20 you know plus years after after manson was arrested we've got pierce writing this in hunter to, to set up what he saw america being going into the 1990s right um basically the movement if you look until the early 2000s uh, during the the 1990s with the exception of say like oklahoma city that things are are pretty well um legal and political i mean the stereotypical like i remember when i was little you would see like history channel documentaries on the far right all the time and uh you had the aryan nations uh being led by pastor butler the an uh the national alliance under dr pierce the na and uh various other uh, organizations again like the white citizens council who actually had like state legislators in the south and things like that involved in the organization it was very kind of high class to a certain extent um in the the council of conservative citizens and then you had the more like street kind of you know working class um movement where the skinheads had really kind of started to die off from the 1980s and the 90s then you had the the Aryan nations and then dr pierce represented kind of the the cream of the crop in his mind of uh, of the white nationalist movement of you know the the more educated upper class individuals but then like basically everyone like dies right like in a very short period of time pastor butler dies and then the the Aryan nations uh, essentially falls apart uh dr pierce dies he gets diagnosed with cancer he passes away and his organization the national alliance gets put in the hands uh somehow dr pierce and his like classism picked like a, a boxer who liked drugs and strippers too much uh based on everything that's ever come out in the media or I've ever heard from former National Alliance members. Uh, the National Alliance, which had, you know, had a multi, you know, hundred acre compound, had a huge publishing arm, had this huge music arm, basically falls apart. Then with the rise of the internet, the music business falls apart too. Um, the White Citizens Council, uh, which was then the Council of Conservative Citizens, starts to really kind of fall apart in the early 2000s. And the movement is really in a rut for, for a long period of time. But going into the early 2010s, then we see on one side the the beginnings of what what we would know as the alt right, which is is kind of you know the, this again more political minded wing, and you've got organizations in the in the interim like the National Socialist Movement that hold protests, but it, it's nowhere near what the movement used to be or what the movement was going to become. But you you have the founding of Iron March, uh, and this is where. All of these ideas, this is where all the, the huge history lesson and stuff like that uh, comes together in the modern era. Like, this isn't a podcast just for history, as much as I love history. Um, I mean, that's that's my one thing. I could talk about uh, all sorts of obscure things all day long, but we're here to talk about why are things happening now. And the foundation of Iron March uh, is, a, is a forum 
uh, started by an individual um, allegedly based out of uh, one of the former like Soviet republics. And it creates this, this kind of think tank where it's not like Stormfront. Like for those who are familiar with Stormfront, um, Stormfront was first created as a forum to support the candidacy of uh, David Duke when he was running for governor of uh, Louisiana. And then it became like a general message board and forum. And it is really always like touted as um, the, the where to go like white nationalist forum, but it, it's not secretive in any way. Anyone can create an account. Um, you know, even if you don't have an account, you can, you can read the threads. And, and it's kind of really a representation for a long time of the the old school movement. Like you see characters like, quote, Pastor uh, Tom Robb of the Knights Party of the Ku Klux Klan uh, regularly posting there and then speaking at like Stormfront conferences. Uh, a lot of the old guard of the movement that had been involved in the, you know, the, the physical protests and things like that for a long time. Iron March was completely different and, and and unique it was entirely youthful um i, I mean I, I had an account there right <laughs> and, and in terms of like debating ideas and and discussing them uh, it was an entirely different crowd it wasn't the you know 60 year old guy that's complaining about you know a, a black black on white crime in cincinnati or something like that like like a, a typical stormfront forum thread instead it was debating the finer points of like which book explaining the the needs of green energy for an eco-fascist future um, best exemplifies like the the esoteric Aryan spirit, right? Like stuff that was totally night and day separate from like the reactionary white nationalist like American movement, and, and it was international. And that, this is an important thing to talk about that Iron March, of course, being founded by by a non-American. Um, brought together people from all over the world to start debating and discussing these ideas. And this is where we see the reemergence of Siege. Essentially, James Mason had been a nobody in the movement um, for decades at this point. Like after, um, you know, he, he had been imprisoned on, a, on a different charges, he had, he had really fallen into obscurity. But Iron March is the one that dug up. I mean, someone must have had like an old mimeographed copy of Siege or something like that and um, and brings it up. And so you've got all these young guys uh, in the early you know 2010s that, that are starting to debate and discuss these ideas that had long since fallen by the wayside. They had not really played any sort of practical role in the ideology or organization of um, American white nationalism or, or anything for... I mean, I don't know, like 20 years, you know, 25 years in a lot of ways. I mean, things things really, really shifted for a long time. And uh, then we start to see this this resurgence. And that's when, like, the meme starts coming out. You would see it, uh, in, you know, in, increasingly spreading um, in uh, chat rooms and things like that. You know, hashtag read siege, read siege, uh, exclamation point, you know. Oh, you haven't read siege? It was brought back by this forum, Iron March, that, that brought these ideas out of hibernation and then we see the formation of groups like adam waffen division national action in the united kingdom uh and others all all these splinters really come out of uh come out of iron march which goes to show like the power of the internet for recruiting and you've got a lot of again young talented guys objectively talented creating propaganda where i mean i remember like when i started my white student union at towson university i uh, didn't have any graphic designers i uh, basically still should just be using a flip phone, not a techno, you know, technology guy at all. And uh, I had to, uh, to, to do like recruiting. None of, none of my guys knew how to use like graphic design. So we had to take like an old National Alliance leaflet from like the 80s um, of like a, like a white, blonde haired, blue eyed woman um, that said, save your race. And then we like threw on the bottom, you know, support your local white student union. And that was the propaganda we had. But on the flip side, and I think this intersects probably in some ways, uh, maybe you could talk about uh, with propaganda for you in terms of the jihadi experience, but like the propagandists from like, coming out of Iron March that then went into, you know, actual organizations were really good. It had a very distinctive art style. It was, it was crisp. It was edgy. It, it really appealed to like a lot of youth and it was a total break from the, the presentation and the ideology um, seen in propaganda amongst American white nationalists for decades. But it was a callback in a lot of ways um, to, the, to the much uh, lower budget 
uh, National Socialist Liberation Front propaganda. So Iron March brings these ideas back, brings the styles back from an organization that no one had probably talked about in 30, 40 years, right, mm -hmm. in, in the United States, brings all these things and repackages them for a brand new audience, and, and we're living with a legacy today. Very good. Thank you for that. That That's great that you brought us all the way up to that point because it's very, very crucial to understand. It's a repackaging of old wine in a new bottle in a new context. Um, but then it gives sort of this rebirth to Mason, and that is something that we will cover um, and the influence of Mason, and we will cover how he sort of endorsed that fragmentation and sort of gained a resurrection in the movement itself when we cover Siege. Um, what kind of impact does reference to William Luther Pierce have in these Iron March discussions, if any at all? And how do you see the impact of Turner Diaries and The Hunter perpetuating itself into this sort of restart? Is there an impact? Does it uh, play a role in the early discussions, in particular on Iron March, in contemplating these uh, new ways to interpret in the context of massive technological shifts, uh, a massive groundswell of support for more radical thinking, the context of a war on terror, and all the other different things. How does it retranslate itself 30 years later in a modern, technologically uh, enhanced uh, context? Uh, and, uh, and, and why does it start to resonate? And uh, talk a little bit about that resonance. How did the uh, more serial killer-ish, Mansonite, Masonist strand of thinking, um, how did it win out uh, as time went on? And how did it lead to these splinters that became Adam Waffen, the National Alliance, Fear Krieg, and others, the base that we're worried about today? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I really think... Um... What, what it comes down to in terms of like Dr. Pierce's, um, you know, legacy is, is he was generally well thought of. Um, there, there, there's, I, I mean, I, I can't even begin to count the amount of arguments I had about Christianity, um, you know, in terms of like dealing with the movement. And actually, one of the, uh, the, the, the biggest divides where for a long time there was an antagonistic relationship between Adam Waffen Division and, uh, and Iron March in general, and my own organizing because I was a Christian and the majority of our, our members were Christian, right? Uh, because the ideas in Christianity, I think pretty much uh, across the board of, you know, that the, the idea of like the meek shall inherit the earth about uh, promoting peace and things like that really went against the... Um, the, the views of these individuals and Dr. Pierce's institutionalized um, opposition to Christianity and Christian ethics, I think in, in a lot of ways is probably like never talked about. I've never read anything about it, but I think it is one of the most long lasting, um, you know, it, legacies that uh, all of his work brought and with the National Alliance. And of course you see in his books, like in Hunter, there's an entire huge, huge section where uh, Oscar Yeager is involved um, with, with some other people in a, in a small organization that that's supposed to represent essentially the National Alliance. And uh, they, they promote a character to be a, a, a televangelist and start promoting like a, a bastardized version of Christianity, uh, but they're it, they're all anti-Christian. Like the the televangelist in question uh, doesn't believe in any sort of uh, you know in, in Christian ethics. It, it's all a shtick to try and get the uh, the dumb rube rednecks uh, like myself, right, who who believe in Christianity, to fall in line with their incredibly anti-Christian doctrine uh, doctrine and dogma. So that, um, you know, was something that was often talked about, about, you know, even excluding Christians from uh, membership and organizations um, that were being formed. I mean, this is all still, people are, are throwing spaghetti against the wall and, you know, seeing, seeing what sticks sort of thing. Um, that, that, that was a major point of contention because Christianity, and when it goes back to a debate that um, happened in the National Socialist German Workers Party in the 1920s and 30s about about Christianity and how Christianity um, does not believe in in exploiting the weak. That that Christianity does not believe in uh, like mass blood purges of um, you know people say if they're they're crippled or things like that. And even if you disagree with people, uh, I mean we've had a, a long legacy of you know Christians defending themselves against uh, the you know, invasion of Vienna or Charles Martel at Tours and things like that. Um, and there's some, some, some dark spots on the history of Christianity, as there, there are, I think, with um, 
you know, every religion fundamentally, not, not those moments I just mentioned, but you know, they, they do happen, but um, the, the Christian ethics are, were really debated and seen um, as being kind of the, um, the, the father of, of Bolshevism, right? The, the, the father of, of communism in a lot of ways and uh, an op- a really virulent hatred of Christianity is, uh, is apparent through Dr. Pierce's work but then through these organizations as well, um, continuing to the modern day, like, you know, so, so you think like with a Christian, like Christian just war doctrine uh, has, has been established in, you know, starting in Western Europe for a very long time. And Christians weren't supposed to use like crossbows against one another, right? Like, <laughs> like the, the, the basis of what became like the Geneva Convention and things like that on how to treat prisoners, on how to treat civilians of the code of conduct of war. Although um, that really got thrown out, um, I think starting in with uh, you know the, the mass civilian bombings in World War II, and today I don't really think the Western countries really abide by um, a lot of the <laughs> the rules. But um, the basis for what we would consider like the rules of engagement, the rules of war, um, are, are are based on on these Christian principles. And this is something that these organizations and individuals, uh, Dr. Pierce included, like when he talks in the Turner Diaries about like putting you know throwing nuclear weapons at china and just killing all the chinese because they're different obviously that's a violation of like christian ethics regardless i think of what denomination you come from including like that would be opposed to say like men like leon de grell like general leon de grell was was an ss general he was a faithful catholic till the day he died um but you know he never promoted like hatred of other groups of people um, he, he has a lot of famous things I could go into on that, but but it would put them at odds ideologically with even like the original National Socialists. Um, but but this is a fight between say guys like Leon de Grell and Reinhard Heydrich. Again, it's it's these these ongoing debates that always um, keep keep coming up. So I think Pierce's legacy, as we see in the Turner Diaries and see in Hunter, is I mean one an increasing acceptance of of not using the political system of believing in like political violence, but then also not being bound by any morals. Like, you know, if you look at organizations like, like I bring up the IRA a lot, I'm very familiar with IRA history. Uh, The Irish Republican army is very famous for uh, calling ahead to, even if it was like a police station or things like that, to say that a bomb has been set um, to, to minimize civilian casualties or even casualties of um a british military personnel like they were they were very polite um (laughs) you know there were there were some dark times on both sides between the paramilitary organizations uh between republicans and loyalists but but they were incredibly polite um in comparison to, to how i think people generally think about uh political violence and um that is not what uh pierce was talking about in hunter um, that is not what was really being uh, understood and accepted by uh, by Mason. And then these next generations, really, it's a rejection of like traditional ethics on civilians, on who is a, a legitimate target, and viewing the political struggle in a way that's uh, really a war to the knife, um, you know, last man standing wins sort of thing. So, so I think that legacy of Pierce uh, is not just like the tactics, not just the rejection of, of politics. Uh, but also the rejection of of ethics and morals that that govern a political struggle uh, and, and govern like the rule of law essentially accepted uh, in most countries around the world, and and that's one of the the longest legacies. So I mean, people ask like, why are there shootings in mosques? Like, why are there attacks on synagogues? Why are there attacks uh, on black churches and things like that? Uh, something that that I think if you were to go back in time and interview uh, members of different like fascist parties and things like that. Um, back in the 1930s and 40s, that that they would say like you you don't attack civilians, right? Um, you know you follow the Geneva Convention, and that was um, has been totally rejected, thrown out the window, and essentially everyone can be a target, including uh, people who are white nationalists who disagree with these individuals. Um, so it, it's not just a, about ethnicity, it's not just about religion, um, it, it's also anyone who doesn't agree with them, and, and that's a big legacy too of, of Mason. Um, that, that we see in like Adam Waffen division and others that uh, even pro-whites who aren't on their team exactly, they, um, they feel no loyalty to whatsoever and uh, are fine if they, uh, they get off or, or they will be off, you know, they'll be, they'll be shot by, um, you know, the, the Vanguard party or whatever. So, yeah, I would say the legacy is um, really, uh, really deep and, and Pierce had a, a long lasting history in a way that uh, most people never talk about. 
I would agree, and I think that that's a very, very, very effective way to put it. Um, I think if Iron March is marked by anything, it's marked by a victory of those that were espousing a sort of neo-neo-fascism, if you will, that is based on an ontology or an understanding of human behavior that is only the strong survive and might is right if we were to reduce it to a framework. And that does have serious implications for what is considered an acceptable strategy and tactic and for the uh, ultimate formulation of a coherent worldview and ideology that can justify uh, what essentially is most uh, basically referred to as barbarity, um, in my opinion. That's where you get these more Satanist strands of thinking. That's where you get these divisions that start to percolate a revisitation of old arguments, reframing them in a manner that is uh, now uh, only grown uh, even more sort of decentralized and more based upon a role of the act of violence itself against anyone who is considered an enemy is in a sense the most effective form of social protest at this point, which is the clearest denunciation of utilizing the system in order to save the system or to work within the system to promote revolutionary change. And now we have this sort of uh, mobilization towards things that are essentially uh, right in line with what Charles Manson would have uh, promoted himself, what Mason, I think, was trying to take the direction off into, even though, you know, he is now claiming probably because of Adam often being put on, you know, certain uh, domestic terrorist lists, that that's not his intention in disbanding some of these more formal structures. We are going more towards the decentralized lone wolf model uh, as the future progresses and understanding this historical trajectory, particularly how it resurrected itself. Um, I think is crucial. And then your ability to connect that to the ontology and the distinct uh, differences in understanding between what we could say the uh, crowd that wanted to preserve quote unquote Christian ethics and a just war theory or at least framing of violence in the just war framework and those that said throw all of that out of the window, culture and society is diseased. Only the strong, in a very nihilistic uh, and Naziist type way, uh, can uh, rescue us from what will be impending decline, attributing that decline to nefarious groups such as the, uh, the Jewish cabal controlling the world, the globalists, or however you want to put it. And it itself is represented now in very many different strands in very, very many different ways, and not understanding that is a hindrance, uh, particularly as we now are starting to adopt the term accelerationist and use it to apply it to almost any act of violence, even where there's no evidence it was carried out in the name of an ideology or cause. So in final conclusion, uh, maybe you could expound just a little bit and then tell us where you're taking us next, the book that we'll be covering next week and how that connects to uh, what we've covered uh, in this series thus far. Well, we're, oof, we, we, we have a lot. There's so many things to cover. Um, and as we go forward in the series, uh, I kind of want to really encapsulate the, the accelerationism and, and make it understood, especially for the first couple episodes, because it, it's so important to, to understand what we're dealing with. Then I want to get into uh, some of the boring history that, uh, <laughs> you know, motiv motivates uh, different parts of the movement, um, the more political wing. But uh, I think we're going to do Siege next week, which is, um, I mean, we've already talked about a lot of this, but uh, to actually dig in. Siege is a really big book, actually, and there, there's a lot of principles there. And I, I guess in conclusion, you know, one thing I really wanted to, to touch on, and I've mentioned it before, is uh, the impact of Satanism, um, which is something that, that, like with Iron March and things like that, the, the Order of Nine Angles is a really important, and feel free for everyone to, to research, but um, when I say Satanism, I don't mean like the Church of Satan, I mean like, like, real Satanism um, <laughs> uh, as a big inspiration for, for motivating uh, a lot of these individuals and, and groups, including justifying like acts of terror. And we see the overlap uh, with groups like the base by their glorification of jihadists uh, comes from the, the inspiration of the Order of Nine Angles. Now, for those of you like who, who aren't aware, um, it's a satanic left-hand path um, ideology, um, which is something that could, 
you know, we could go into it for a long time. But the big thing, again, is this rejection of Christianity. It's a rejection of, like, any sort of human equality. It's uh, really against, like, even being nice, right? Because anything that be considered, like, weak, um, you know, needs to be to be purged and destroyed and, and kind of sacrificed. That um, the, the overlap in the post-war period between the Order of Nine Angles and Satanism in general and, like, white supremacist terror is really clear. Um, and I think that needs to be understood for folks who are listening, because, I mean, if you were to go back to, um, you know, the National Socialist German Workers Party, plank 24 of the 25 points is a belief that Christianity is the morals of um, uh, to govern the movement, right? Like Adolf Hitler, after he becomes the leader of Germany, declares that, uh, that Christian ethics uh, is going to govern things. They shut down the Masonic lodges. Uh, they shut down atheist societies and things like that. Fast forward to the post-war period, the Order of Nine Angles uh, in one of their publications says, and this is kind of that retconning history that you see, that um, one of the publications of the Order of Nine Angles said that uh, National Socialist Germany was a practical expression of satanic spirit, a burst of Luciferian light of zest and power in an otherwise Nazarene, pacified, and boring world. Um, so in terms of this ideology, they, they, they really believe that, um, you know, it's not like Aleister Crowley, uh, Satanism or occultism. Um, it's it, the darker, the better, um, the, <laughs> the, the scarier, the better that, that, um, this idea like that, that Pierce puts forward in the Turner diaries about an all white world, the order of nine angles takes the next level where a, a lot of the members over the last couple decades have talked about creating an Aryan colonized Milky Way galaxy that they're going to uh, not just, you know, conquer the entire planet, um, wipe out uh, or uh, pacify, you know, every group of people on the planet, but uh, this is going to extend into the stars. This is a, uh, a very sort of like Nietzschean and the, the most perverted understanding of Nietzsche's philosophy. And this is, I mean, we could talk about Nietzsche in another episode, I think, uh, which would be good because the interpretations one gets, gets from Nietzsche or other philosophers can be taken in a lot of different ways. But the Order of Nine Angles believes in this, you know, the, the like you said, um, that, that the strong will conquer the weak. It is the, the duty and responsibility of the strong to, uh, to conquer and kill and, and exploit the weak. And, and this is the ideology that a, uh, a lot of, of individuals involved in Iron March and then in Adam Waffen Division and the base are, are involved with. So like groups like the Islamic State uh, or others that, that you can see that they've done propaganda or affinity to is not based on, say, opposition to Zionism, is not based on opposition to American imperialism in the Middle East, is not even like just this person is opposed to the system. Like you can agree or disagree with those critiques, but there, that, that's like an ideological, understandable position, even if you don't agree with it, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, like ISIS is cool because ISIS is, you know, raping Yazidis, uh, because ISIS is cutting the heads off of Christians, because uh, ISIS is like cartoon villain evil, right? Like that's why there is an affinity. It's not based on on any of the deeper ideological um, perspectives of left or right that that a, an organization or individual could could follow it's actually just based on like terror and that having a peaceful society having um you know a world where like i could go to church with my family and go work on a you know a small farm and uh mind my own business and have like a simple life is the opposite of what these people want it, it's also taking a perversion um in, in certain elements of like the uh, the folkish traditions right uh, of Europeans the victory of Valhalla mindset that the only way to have like a fulfilling life is through like in their mind like heroic deeds which is like hurting people who are weaker than you and exploiting them and things like that I mean it's 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 an inversion of both not only Christianity but also like paganism um, and things like that to uh, believe in this sort of perspective of if, if someone's going to rule the planet, someone's going to rule the stars, right? Someone's going to colonize Mars and that place belongs single-handedly to those that are willing to, to inflict the most pain, suffering, and death to, uh, to achieve it. And if you're throwing your life away and taking a bunch of people with you, shooting up a, a mosque or shooting up a Walmart, uh, you are helping achieve the galactic imperium of, uh, <laughs> you know, Aryan Satanists or, or whatever, which, 
which sounds crazy if if so many people like hadn't bought into it if it wasn't if it wasn't so clear and you can see in like leaks that have come from the iron march forums and things like that of uh guys like whipping their girlfriends while they're like holding naked while they're holding like the book siege and like have bite marks on them or like um promoting you know images of like tortured people i mean like like really dark stuff okay <laughs> like where we've gone far beyond like white people having a white country like that's that that, that like political white nationalism in this are um you know uh, uh, so, some individuals like on the far left would really disagree but i would say the ideology um which again like pierce did not come up with all this but when he talks about in the turner diaries like killing everyone who isn't white on the planet uh that's something that like adolf hitler never said okay like that's not something that uh the national front in britain in the 1970s ever said oswald mosley or benito mussolini or francisco franco like none of those guys uh said like we're gonna like torture kill and murder every other person who's different than us on the planet uh and go to the moon right <laughs> like that's for satan like none of them said that this is a a clear ideological thing which falls into um a, a longer trend of accelerationism of terror violence and, and anarchy um that that leads us to why young kids are being brainwashed essentially to go commit acts of terror it's it's for a specific worldview that uh is very unique uh and and doesn't really overlap in a lot of ways with real ideological uh, fascism or you know any, any any sort of right-wing thinking um it's its own it's its own thing but pierce's legacy is still with us and these organizations and, and individuals have just been driven underground and it's a real problem that has to be combated um, because they, they're not interested in politics. It's something deeper and darker than anything involving politics uh, and, and it needs to be addressed. So we'll, uh, we'll get into a lot of other stuff and I, I hope that uh, bringing Satanism at the end wasn't too, uh, <laughs> too, too often left field, Jesse, but you know, I, I think it's uh, something that, that again, to understand these guys, they're they're not reading Mein Kampf and and taking, uh, you know, its passages and saying, oh, we're we're going to do this. It's we're going to take the, uh, you know, okay, we're we're going to use the imagery, right? Uh, we're going to use you know callbacks to uh, you know the 1930s and 40s, and but it's actually something I, I think very ideologically distinct and uh, things like the Order of Nine Angles and uh, you know Satanism and terror is. Uh, Going from the 1970s, to, you know, well, Manson in a lot of ways, you know, he, talking about like that he's the devil and stuff like that, too, in some of his interviews. Um, that's uh, that's what we're seeing today. And we're, we're still dealing with. Indeed, and indeed, we are. And I think that the entire purpose of this long historical trajectory through the most influential books on the far right is is is, is essentially just to arrive at that an ability to tease out and to distinguish the accelerationist trends that I mean, we have to adopt the term it's been adopted. I myself don't necessarily agree with the way that it's applied. But I think what we're going for here is an ability to understand the epistemological and the ontological basis upon which these ideas have metastasized. And you're doing a very good job taking us through that trajectory. Because because as you know, we could have H uh, conversations about the Turner Diaries, but what you've done is you've captured it uh, with concision to the degree that it will only feed into the conversation from here, which again next week will be about James Mason and Siege. And that does lead us into conversations that are particularly intriguing that involve things like Satanism. So uh, interestingly enough, we, uh, we will continue from here next week. We thank you for being with us and I look forward to continuing the discourse. Thank you, man. <laughs>